I'm Ellie Flynn and this is Underworld, behind the scenes of the NCA. This podcast series unearths the murky world of dangerous criminals across the UK and the incredible work undertaken by the National Crime Agency to bring them to justice. I think we go to about 200 murders a year and then quite a lot of other sexual offences and other major crimes in some form or other. So we deploy to quite a lot throughout the, the whole team. There's an awful lot of pressure on an SIO and it's really intense. 23 and a half hours a day. In the, I describe it as a heated battle, but it really is. It's white hot heat that you're in in those first few days of investigation. Outside of UK policing, and the Dutch police, there is nothing similar to this anywhere in the world. Last year, we probably had 1,200 cases that came to us for support, and our biggest area is child protection and child death. It's very emotive. In the final episode in this series, you'll hear about the NCA's Major Crime Investigative Support, or MCIS, a team of specialist units that provides frontline policing with unique skills and expertise in major crime investigations, such as abduction, serial sexual crimes, and murders where the victim's body has not been found. A mixture of officers from the NCA and law enforcement that provides a single point of contact for police forces and law enforcement agencies across the UK and around the world. Episode 8, The Specialists. Ken Donnelly is one of three national NCA advisors providing advice and guidance to senior investigating officers in major crime inquiries. They all have a regional responsibility. Ken covers Northern England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. He's been in policing since he joined at 19, retiring from the police as a detective superintendent in 2015, joining the NCA soon after. Sometimes, uh, and I like this attitude, uh, SIOC is as a tool in their tool bag. So sometimes it's about reassurance, am I doing the right things? Um, uh, is there any advice you can give me? Sometimes it's I've got problems and I need specialist advice and we've got some specialists within our team that might be able to fill that gap for them. We deal with all the logistics. We arrive and we hopefully give them what they're after. And that's one of the key parts to the job is establishing that discussion with the, the SIO about, right, what have you got? What do you think you need? Here's what I think we can give you. Andy Murphy, National SIO Advisor. I've got 30, five years experience of investigation and I, I bring that to to the benefit of others throughout the southwest region. I'm a critical friend for those really serious and complex cases. The major crime investigative support team can trace its history back to 2006 and the Byford report, an independent inquiry into the police handling of the Yorkshire Ripper case. It was a significant moment in the history of British policing and helped to shape the way that serious crimes are investigated today. This capability started out as a result of the review into the Yorkshire Ripper case. And before that, what they used to do was actually call in Scotland Yard, if you remember. Oh, you call in the yard. That's how well, my dad was a senior detective before me. And we've evolved from that and we've changed that into a much more, in my opinion, professional process since Byford, which has identified a hub a, a group of specialists, experienced, knowledgeable individuals that sit together to advise police forces on those really complex and difficult cases that you don't get every time in a police force. But when you do get them, you need that 
additional knowledge, capability surge of experience that can come in and support you. And that's where it was based upon. Like many of his colleagues in the major crime support team, Andrew worked in investigation for 35 years before joining the NCA. It's experience that's invaluable in understanding the pressures that senior investigating officers face. I've been on the other side of this. When you are that person who's investigating a really complex case in a police force somewhere in the United Kingdom, and you're really you know, up against it, both by way of resources, but understanding the complexity of the case, you do feel sometimes, right, can I just talk to you and just so that we're on the same page? Or is there anything that I'm really just something really simple that I'm missing in all of this. I mean, on an average week, I might go to two or three cases, but some of them as well, those deployments as well are repeat deployments. So some cases you've been involved with sometimes for years, but uh, very often for weeks or months, and you stay with them as long as they want you there to help support. There are some niche capabilities that you don't have in a police force that we have. So behavioral advice, forensic clinical psychology, Although we then complement that with some of the other specialists that you do have in force, but because we're looking at it from a national perspective, we have all that learning best practice from a UK-wide and international perspective that they can bring to bear on the case. So it's a bit of both, really. We've got an expert advisors database and we can access those and we can manage the process for forces to access those experts. And then we have a team of specialists that are actually on our team. These are all national leads for these specific subjects, from forensic clinical psychology, behavioral investigative advice, which is what used to be called profilers. None of them are uh, Robbie Coltrane or look like Robbie Coltrane from Cracker, but it's that basic role in, in essence. National family liaison advisor, missing persons advisor for crime, uh, because so many, you know, a reasonable significant amount of missing people turn out to be actually nobody murders, unfortunately. So uh, it's a crucial area of our work supporting those sorts of things, national interview advisor, and so on and so forth. So we have a number of specialists, which between Andy, Noel and I, we manage. Uh, and we, when we grade a job or when we assess a job and scope out a job that we've got with an SIO and come to us this fresh job, we might start suggesting, well, you might want this specialist from our team and that specialist. And sometimes they work in combination, you know, like a clinical psychologist with a national interview advisor, perhaps where a subject has got mental health issues. You know, so they would work well together for that to planning how you're going to interview somebody. Noel McHugh completes the SIO support team, covering the south of England. His route into the NCA was via the Metropolitan Police as a senior investigating officer leading a homicide team for nine years with experience in counter-terrorism as well. Along with Ken and Andrew, Noel never knows what cases he might be asked to assist with. On the 10th of December 2022, an explosion at a three-storey block of flats in Jersey generated 800 lines of inquiry. The call came in from Jersey police for help in what they knew would be a huge investigation. At Christmas, we had the gas explosion in Jersey and we were asked to provide support there. So I brought some of our specialists, such as uh, Dr. Carl Harrison, our forensic specialist, uh, Murray Haynes, a search advisor, and um, Aaron Barnes is my crime scene, crime investigative support officer. And we went to Jersey and provided support. And that initial support was around the advice and guidance with regards to the build-up of the forensic uh, response, the structures that were being put in place. And to look for, from Jersey's perspective, that's an enormous investigation because it's a, a small island. For me, I, I one of the most enlightening 
parts of that deployment was to draw on the experience of all the major and complex investigations such as the Grenfell Tower, Manchester bombing, um, Hillsborough and the like, where we could bring the senior investigating officers together on teams and we could talk about different themes and draw from their learning. Because if you were to uh, try and distill that into a written report, you would have volumes to read. But that conversation, allowing the SIO to have the conversation with peers and draw out and develop their needs, like a shopping list, really, according to their investigation is invaluable. My name is Carl Harrison and I'm the National Forensic Specialist Advisor. Unlike many of my colleagues in the agency, um, the day-to-day -day work is murders and serious sexual assaults as opposed to frauds or trafficking and the other stuff that, that most of the people who work here do. Uh, but yes, it, it is very busy. Carl Harrison has had a less conventional route into law enforcement than others. Different experiences and backgrounds bring unique skills which make the NCA what it is. I'm an archaeologist, so I, I have something of a different and circuitous background, I suppose. I was looking for a part-time archaeology master's course that I could do, and a police detective suggested that I might want to look at uh, forensic archaeology as a route to go to, which was, at that time, late 90s, was a very new subject. I think it was only the second year that the course I went on had run for. And I had never, no planning at all in my career, never even considered that forensics or policing would be something that I'd be interested in. Going out and seeing crime scene managers, going out and reviewing photographs, reviewing video, um, spending time with them, I see as being essential. So I'm out on the road a lot um, and trying as much as I can to talk to people in person and to build those relationships. Um, in addition to then picking up meetings, probably people I know better who, who I can advise more quickly using remote means. Murray Haynes is another of the specialists. He's the NCA's national search advisor supporting police forces when someone goes missing. He also acts as a liaison officer with the Police National Search Centre on crime, missing persons and counter-terrorism search issues. And it's a big job. Statistics would suggest there's upwards of 300,000 people go missing every year. But of course, not all of those require a physical search and they're graded as uh, low, medium, high. There is a search discipline within the police that we support. And there's probably about 500 odd search advisors out there, 550 perhaps, uh, across UK policing who are trained as pulsers, police search advisors. And they will be dealing with these cases throughout the year ongoing. Uh, and my role really is when those referrals come to me is there's no easy ones. So it's the more challenging, it's the more complex, the higher profile ones, things where we have done everything we thought would be appropriate. And then I'm almost uh, for, for the posters, I'm a sounding board. So I like to see myself as a critical friend or, or perhaps a purveyor of experience. So unusual cases, unusual circumstances. It might be the circumstances of the disappearance. It might be the circumstances of where we have to search, for instance, uh, say a flooded quarry or a, a collapsed mine, something that is unlikely to have come across the police search advisor's desk on a previous 
uh, a previous occasion, in which case that's when I step in and sort of not only use my experience and knowledge, but also those that I've learned from over the years. The investigation of crime has substantially changed, major crime has substantially changed over my time uh, investigating. I found back when I started as a detective in 1990. Um, that makes me seem incredibly old, I understand. But when I go back to that, we didn't have DNA. It didn't exist as an investigative tool, and we didn't have uh, communications data of any kind. That didn't exist. So you were reliant on, I won't call them historical uh, detective tactics, but you had to investigate by talking to people, by getting information from people. An old school, if you like, detective knocking on doors, all that sort of thing. And I think sometimes there's a little danger that investigators forget that we need to be proficient in that because if they get a job where there's no phones involved and they haven't got any DNA, it's sometimes just you think, are you just thinking, what do I do now? Then I think sometimes we help bring that back online as well, as well as that fascinating world of expertise. Jerry Waite is a crime advisor with an MCIS. He has over 30 years policing experience as a DCI, Detective Chief Inspector. He was also a specialist homicide officer with experience in child abuse investigations and public protection. An officer will come to us with a particular problem. They might have, they might need an expert in, let's say, um, shooting, for instance. So they've got a case where someone has shot a somebody using a shotgun and they might need an expert in shotguns. Um, so we've got a database of around about three to four hundred different experts with different skills and we would be able to look on that database, find them an expert in shotguns who would then be able to talk to provide evidence to their investigation around how maybe how shotguns work, how they fire their cartridges, etc. So that's the kind of work that we do. As well as accessing experts with a range of niche specialist skills, Ken, Andrew and Noel are in a unique position to perform a support and mentoring role for SIOs around the country. And that first-hand experience of knowing what it means to lead an investigation from the other side is so important. I'm working on some of the most interesting cases in the UK and beyond, fine-tuning my skills that I've learned over 35 years. And actually, the benefits of that, you can see tangible results. So we don't actually own the investigations. That's the one thing I want to get out. So we advise and support and guide. And, and consequently, that in itself actually sort of gives you a bit more scope to start to think laterally, to think, okay, from my experience and knowledge and, and, and the way that actually this investigation is evolving, this might be the best thing to do. At another job recently in the last 12 months or so um, in the, the uh, northwest of England, the victim was unknown to police, lived in a nice area, found dead in the street outside his house had uh, gunshot injuries and injuries from chemicals that had been put on his body and it was in a, a nice street, in a nice estate, in a nice area. Nobody had seen it happen. There was fragments of CCTV that showed the movement of a vehicle, etc. And, uh, and there was just nothing to say who would have killed this guy in this specific way. And it, it was such an unusual way to kill somebody. And that started off as a proper whodunit. And it was a lot of support from ourselves, from behavioural investigators, you know, what sort of person might you be looking for, who might have done, why might they have done things in the way that they've done them? What does that speak to in terms of what their motivation might have been? 
So, so the type of personal type motivations that might have caused this murder. So there's a lot of stuff around that. We've got a geographic profiler in our team, the only one as far as I know in the whole of the UK. So they're all about anchor points and why would a person go to that area to commit that crime? Where might they come from? What, what route might they have used to get in? Why might they have avoided certain routes? What does that speak to? So all these sorts of things, these specialisms went in to try and support the investigation. You know, we, we're there to support, provide guidance. We don't physically go and take statements or interview people or anything like that. Uh, and all those things knitted together to help support the investigation, which was solved in part just through good old-fashioned police work and research and researching things in an outside force that gave them some intelligence that led them to identify a suspect. There's an awful lot of pressure on an SIO and it's really intense. 23 and a half hours a day in the, I describe it as a heated battle but it really is it's white hot heat that you're in in those first few days of investigation. Well we don't have that. The reality is and and this is why we do need to pinch ourselves sometimes in our role because we haven't got all of that pressure so the media aren't coming to us for sort of statements the family aren't ringing us and saying where are you up to with my you know investigation we come in got a bit more time we can look at the sort of like all the information that is contained within the investigation and we can say okay you might want to do this have you thought about that you've got to be really good people skills as well know your stuff around people as well and how to lead before joining the NCA, Sonia Bayliss worked on some of the largest high-profile murder inquiries in the country in the Forensic Pathology Department at Guy's Hospital in London. From this, she helped to build the National Injuries Database, a unique resource providing support and advice for serious crime investigations involving all forensic medical issues, both in the UK and internationally. I worked at Guy's Hospital in London for seven years with seven forensic pathologists. I saw how pathologists worked, how they structured reports, how they actually did a post-mortem. And on the back of that, we built a database called the National Injuries Database. That was used to train pathologists, but we actually started to use it more of as an investigative tool to help forces nationally understand causation of injuries and patterns. Now she heads up the expert evidence and specialist witness teams at MCIS in the NCA, but was previously head of the forensic medical advice team in the specialist unit. I've been doing this 29 years and I've just seen the whole landscape change around forensic medicine. Basically, we're the only unit within the agency that deals with medical experts and forensic medical um, areas and concerns and support for forces nationally and internationally. So the team, of which there's eight members of the forensic medical advice team, we have advisors that give frontline support and we also have support officers that help with um, instruction of the experts. So currently... Our remit has expanded from just looking at injuries to instructing medical experts for court. So we're now up to 450 medical experts listed with us that can provide clinical, pre-death and pathological opinions, which is obviously deceased. Not surprisingly, the resources of the forensic medical advice team are in huge demand all over the world. Last year, we probably had 1,200 cases that came to us for support. I mean, a lot of the investigations, you'd either have a known cause, a known weapon, it's found at the scene, whatever. So straightforward cases that you don't need that interpretation of further support is probably um, mainstream, but there are the complex ones, the ones that you're not sure. But with medically, we're getting a lot of inquiries now where they want to understand 
how a person could have behaved prior to death. And our biggest area is child protection and child death. It's very emotive. A lot of the cases in, in the media we've supported in some way around understanding a child with, say, a head injury, whether they would have reacted in a certain way prior to death, would the carers have known that? And that helps with pulling the case together around timing, who's involved for court. So we have a database called Op Marshall, which lists all the child deaths in the country, of which we've probably got um, over 400 cases. And that's for every sort of uh, main child death investigation in the country, homicide. And we have a SPOC, which is a single point of contact within each force that would notify us every time a case comes in. A recent high-profile investigation involved the murder of police community support officer Julia James on a remote footpath in Snowdon near Canterbury in 2021. Noel McHugh was called in to help the Kent Constabulary SIO, who was working on the case. It was critical to get our people to go and do a scene visit to understand that area because it was a, a rural area on one side and quite close by were houses. But what we, you didn't have was the, the things you take for granted in the city and like London uh, of CCTV everywhere, AMPR, all of those building blocks were not there. What really came through was the use of the interview advisor, Annie Smith, who had asked the question, when you do your house to house and you knock on your doors, what are the questions that you're going to be asking? What order are you going to be asking them? And making sure we're refreshing that information, because house to house is a massive task for an inquiry team. And you put people out to do the work, but are you updating them? on more than new information. Now to the public, that might seem so obvious, but you've got to think of, you've got all these different strands that are working on your murder and you've got to keep all of them updated and working in the same direction. The forensic work on the interpretation of the injuries that Julia had sustained. Weapon interpretation was undertaken by our forensic medical advisory team. There was a behavioral and a psychological uh, commentary and there was a picture very early on of an individual who had been stopped by a, uh, a warden or gamekeeper type person and it was a discussion on time pace and distance that individual felt very strongly to be the suspect and on releasing that picture within three hours there was a phone call naming and describing that he had uh, exhibited some strange behaviors I'm so proud of Dave Halling, who's my digital media uh, specialist, because for the first time on a British prosecution, we were able to derive data from Julia's smartwatch, which would tell the story of her heart rate and her other personal information from Julia's smartwatch, which was absolutely crucial in narrating what happened to her right up until the point that she passed. Truly heartbreaking, chilling that you would get that close to someone's murder, whether it isn't CCTV, but crucial to the investigation. And that one piece of work has been shared nationally because it has such great potential across other investigations. I've been on the other side of this. When you are that person who's investigating a really complex case in a police force somewhere in the United Kingdom, and you're really you know, up against it, both by way of resources, but understanding the complexity of the case, you do feel sometimes, right, can I just talk to you and just so that we're on the same page? Or is there anything that I'm really just, something really simple that I'm missing in all of this? You know, what a case that has recently come to conclusion, 
the, the murder of Mohammed Shah Sabani. This is one of my last investigations in the Metropolitan Police. In, uh, he was in a dispute with other uh, individuals over a drugs debt. He turned up to a meeting and um, expected to collect £5,000 and that never happened. He would disappear for six months and for six months I would conduct an investigation to try and locate Shah's body. Ultimately, we would come down to a 1.7 square mile area through an assessment of intelligence and work that we had done. It was interpreting how do we search that wooded area out in Beaconsfield. And it was working that area down, access routes with search advisor. We would put dogs to work. The dogs would identify the lower jaw. We had to prove that that was Mohammed's. So we would bring in forensic experts. We would use DNA to link it back to uh, Shah. It would lead to a two month external search for the recovery of Shah's body because he'd been buried in a stream coming off of the uh, M40. He'd been buried in May and then the water had washed away during the winter. The animals sadly had scavenged him and his body had been distributed uh, quite vastly. How do we get all of these experts such as the crime scene manager, the archaeologist, the, you know, um, several teams of search officers working as, a, as an orchestra and all working together. They built effectively a village, they put scaffolding in and the precision of the, of the, that they drew out. The crime scene manager, also an archaeologist, but an employee of the Metropolitan Police, she would notice on the far out uh, boundary of the search, she would notice some heavy clay on top of ordinary mud. And this was to be interpreted that that was part of the exit route. So the precision in which they drew out that detail was absolutely critical. Laura Hines is another of the many specialists working within the NCA's MCIS team. She's the National Vulnerable Witness Advisor. Our function is to help them conduct reliable forensic interviews with people like children and witnesses. Interviewing is both an art and a skill especially with someone who is classed as vulnerable. But what does that actually mean in the eyes of the law? There are categories of vulnerable people. Uh, however, when I train interviewers, I also remind them that vulnerability exists outside of that. And as a competent interviewer, you should always be aware of wider vulnerabilities. So for example, adult, female, with uh, no diagnosis under the Mental Health Act, no learning disability, uh, she's an adult. She may be the victim of a sexual offence that was so traumatic. She may also have separately to this three young children and very little money. A ex-partner who subjected her to quite severe domestic violence, separate abuse while she was growing up, um, perhaps English as a second language. None of those factors would necessarily make her vulnerable in the eyes of the law but very much will impact on the quality of an interview that you're able to conduct with that fictional lady. The EMSIS Advisor database can source experts across a broad and vast range of academia, science and medicine, from anthropology and entomology through to gate analysis, fire investigation, forensic linguistics and the study of diatoms, which are a single-cell algae found in waterways and soil. If a body goes into water, it will ingest or can have ingested water specific to that site, or if it's found somewhere else, there will be diatoms from water intake that will be from where they come from, for instance. So I know of a, a case that we got involved with where we didn't know where the body was from, and there was no ID, we got nothing through the normal media sort of trying to identify who this person could be. 
Uh, it was only through diatoms that we established they must have come from a specific area of Lancashire because the diatoms that were rich in them were ones that were specific to that particular area. Policing's evolving. So, you know, our geographic profile and our the suspicious missing persons advice, I'm just use this as a case in point. We were dealing with a, um, a murder. It was a deposition site away from where the murder scene was. These are really unusual cases. And previously, we had sort of, sort of data that would say, okay, 90% of these cases, they're deposited no more than 20 metres away. 10%, it goes wider, goes wider. But just to show you how things change, with the advent of the wheelie bin, that all changed. Our specialists have to keep in, you know, so they're always doing the research, data, so you'll get new cases, you then crunch the numbers on the data around that. And the advice you're giving is so current, but it's changing all the time. And it's obviously changed around digital media. For Sonia Bayliss in the forensic medical team, there are obvious pressures that come with the job especially when dealing with cases involving children? It, it is difficult and it's something that comes up a lot with my team. Because I come from quite a scientific medical background, I, I sort of compartmentalise what I'm doing and not try and get into the emotional side of it. However, when I had my little one, obviously dealing with child death post having him, your behaviours and your feelings change, understandably, because, you know, you think about Arthur and Star Hobson that were in the press recently, quite horrific cases on these little ones and the trauma that they went through. You can't but help feeling more towards how is that possible? So one thing that I do, and I've always done, even when I was at Guys, that we we tend to talk about cases together as a team. So you don't isolate yourself and look at a case. So we talk about it openly to try and diffuse any sort of... Um, any feelings that you might have and, and try and diffuse it before you go home. Because obviously it's difficult. You can't go home and talk about cases to your family and your family don't need to know about it anyway. So we try and do that within the environment that we're here. And for many across the different facets of the MCIS team in the National Crime Agency, they take pride in the knowledge that the skills they bring to the role make a huge difference to people's lives. A lot of people think that an interview is dead easy and anybody could do one. And that you could walk in, uh, anybody could walk in, uh, give them a list of points to prove and that most people would be able to ask the right questions about a criminal offence. But when you actually start to really look into what constitutes good interviewing, every interview involves people, but also the fact that there's a wealth of academic research and practical case studies that contribute to what we understand. When you've recovered someone who's lost particularly if they're deceased, and you stop that family that you'll never meet from having that horrible thought of ambiguity and having no idea that could linger for years and years, possibly till they die themselves. I think that's a reward. I don't, I'm not sure I would get that anywhere else. So uh, I'm very privileged to do that. And that is what keeps me going and keeps me very interested. They're responsible for their investigation, not me. Uh, and if, anything I say to them is just ideas. Um, but at the end of those conversations, it's so rewarding when someone says, you have helped me out. That is, I've got so much I can do now. Thank you. I think that I am probably one of the luckiest people in policing across the UK. I think I've got a job that gives the perfect mix of properly helping people who really need it. Actually, this really unique position of being able to use cutting-edge research, scientific evidence-based techniques and, and make them 
human-based. We're in a position uh, that we are able to do positive work all the time. It is hard work in many different uh, investigative roles. Uh, it's hard yards and we've done a lot of those hard yards with difficult cases and call-outs and the stress and court and managing risk and all that sort of stuff, uh, you know, for murder investigations and other sorts of invest major investigations. And so we recognise the stress that's on SIOs, it's on lead investigators and investigation teams as a whole uh, and the pressures on them. Everything we do, I believe, is positive to try and take some of that pressure off them and to maybe guide an investigation that might be two degrees off where it needs to be. Best job I've ever had, I really love it.